Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Lord, thank you for that blood. Right now, Lord, we just look unto you, the author, the finisher of our faith. We thank you for the blood you shed, the body being broken, for healing, for forgiveness, for deliverance, for all the benefits. Forget not the Lord and all his benefits, all of his benefits. And Jesus, we ask you by the power of the Holy Spirit to display all your benefits here this morning in the hearts and minds of each one of us as we worship you, to hear your word, to be changed, to leave here, different people than we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. may be seated. So, last year, I was here a year ago. Anybody in this service? Last service, there's quite a few people. Okay, good. All right. Good to see you. Hey, that's right. Anyway, um, my wife, Heidi, is here at this service. She's waving her hand there. Hello to Heidi. <laughs> Yesterday was a big day. It was our 20th month anniversary. So we're really piling on the months. <laughs> we had 20 little short candles on a cake last night. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> last year, we also had her son, Jonathan, with us. I think you remember he sang a song with me. He's in Nashville. He's got a girlfriend now. They drove down there this year, and, and he's back at our home in Herman, Missouri, where we live. If you're ever in the Midwest, uh, in southwest of St. Louis, been an hour, be sure and come look us up in a little town called Herman. 2,000 people. We have no traffic lights. We do have a subway. Pretty impressive. Uh, but it's a, a place that we're not totally sure why God led us there yet, but we're there, and we're enjoying it. We got this old 1842... Artstone uh, winery house and log cabin. And just a word about that. I didn't, let me just stop for a second. If you're here last service, redo. This will also not be the same service. I never, I'm not the kind of guy who can do these multiple, go through my notes and deal it off, you know. That's just not my gifting. So I have rabbit trails. So just get ready. You know, that's going to happen. So, but um, our house, uh, we bought this, we saw it online. My wife Heidi is from Holland. We saw it online two years ago, about right now, and um, the stone part looks like a Dutch house, and it was actually built by some Dutch people in 1842. Uh, the log cabin part looks like Daniel Boone. That's me. I'm rustic. You can look at me and tell me I'm rustic. So <clears throat> I text Heidi at work, and she was in Ohio. She got online. We looked at this house. We thought, wow, I think we should go there. And it's like, who do we know? Okay, nobody. Uh, have you seen the house? No. I mean, all the reasons why you want to move there, you know, none of the above. And um, so John and I drove down there and got in a line with 47 people. And actually, it was a freezing, cold, drizzly day. And I took my guitar in, really, to keep it from not getting cold in my car. But I sat next to the real estate lady, kind of, you know, playing mood music. They thought that was with the real estate lady. But it was actually, I have to confess, meandering around, telling people, yeah, it's a cool house, man, what a vibe, you know? But, man, it's just too small. It's way overpriced, you know? I'm, just, I'm like being the D salesman, you know? 
and uh, you know, trying to weed out my competition because I really felt like we were supposed to get there. In fact, our friends drove up from a town 35 miles away, and and uh, they're you know, good people and stuff. And they told me later they got in their car to drive back to Washington. Uh, he runs sound at Calvary Chapel River Bend, or we were thinking we were moving first. But anyway, they got in the car and said, "Man, you know, Paul's done so many cool things for the kingdom of God the last 50 years, and this is going to be such a heartbreak." He's no way he's going to get that house. You know, there's so many people lined up. And there was also a couple in California that were flying from Denver with their uh, real estate agent and their interior decorator. And the man, the woman, four of them. <clears throat> but there was a rule to this uh, sale. You had to be there. And that's a good, good point in this. You had to be there to put your bid in. So they're accepting offers and the next day at 5 o'clock, they were going to close it off and then decide who the highest bidder was or who gets the house. And my friends are like, poor Paul, man, Heidi. Oh, man, they're going to be so disappointed. They're getting ready to get married and could live in this house. It'd be so cool. But they're, you know, it's got art stone winery underneath it. You could turn into the Cavern Studios and Event Center. And it's on a 14-acre spring-fed lake. And, oh, they're poor people. They're just going to, it's going to be such a heartache, you know. And they were just all burdened about it. Well, the next day, God had his way. And long story short, we got the house. And I called up Greg and Helen. I said, guess what, bro? And he goes, what? I said, we got the house. And he literally was like stunned. He told me, and he says, dude, we drove home. We've been depressed all night last night. You know, you're not going to get the house. There's no way, you know, but God saw fit. So if you're ever in little Herman, Missouri, drop in and see us. We'd love to, love to have you over the house and all that stuff. But I, all that to say, uh, it's a year later, and things have changed since we were here a year ago. If I would have backed up four years ago or three years ago, things were different then. <clears throat> Pardon me. I ate a granola bar between service. I should have done that. It's, I've got a little hunk of granola hanging on my <clears throat> back of my throat. Come out of him in Jesus' name. No, no. Okay, sorry. <laughs> This morning, uh, I really want to thank Aaron. First of all, I thank Aaron for him texting me at uh, 8.30. Hey, he's, she's got it. Thank you, brother. All you got to do is mention something, and a servant like him will be right here. I remember you from last year. <laughs> we had fun at the conference, too. The, um, met with Aaron for lunch or breakfast the other day. And uh, it's, it's fun to see somebody the second time. You start getting traction in a friendship and a relationship and, and building trust and strength. And, and um, I knew I was going to be singing some songs because he texted me a few months back. He said, are we going to get a chance to have a Tetelestai repeat? Last year I sang this song called Tetelestai, and it, apparently it made an impression on your people in your fellowship. So I said, yeah, let's do it again. It'd be great. So I was really excited about coming down here. And I think I guess I've just been so busy doing uh, recording and working on this and that and traveling, I kind of just forgotten about what the scope might be. And as we're eating breakfast, Aaron informs me that I'm preaching and doing the music, just doing the whole thing from start to finish, which is my favorite to do, actually. But I kind of lost track that I was sharing. He said, what are you going to teach on? I thought, um, well, <laughs> and I just come from Muscle Shoals, Alabama. I had the joy of a week ago Monday, uh, last Monday, of recording a new song I just written called Sharpen the Axe. And I was telling him that in 1976, 
Uh, my fifth album was an album called Hand of the Plow. Wildly successful, had all these Christian love songs on it that I'd written, uh, you know, for, for weddings and stuff. And for the last 48 years, whatever, I've constantly met people, we got married to your song. You know? So it's, it's always fun. But I told them, I said, back then, after I did Hand the Plow, I wanted to do like a bookend to it that was off of this verse, Ecclesiastes 10.10, 10, uh, which if you have your Bible, please open to it right now. Does anybody need a Bible, first of all? There's, there's some Bibles there we can pass out if you don't have it. Anybody got them? All right, everybody's teed up. Ecclesiastes, right before Song of Solomon, back there in the Old Testament, after Psalms. Give you a second to kind of journey around until you find it. Ecclesiastes is a fantastic book, 12 chapters. It starts out with everything's vanity, and, and Solomon goes on this incredible journey of explaining everything, and finally by the end he says, fear God and keep His commandments, for this applies to everyone. I mean, he just kind of went the full journey, experienced everything that a human being could experience. And most of the uh, latter uh, chapters are filled with almost like Proverbs. And this particular uh, chapter is just full of all kinds of wisdom. But this particular verse uh, really speaks to me. It says, if the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength. But wisdom brings success. So I wasn't planning on teaching. I was going to sing, but I'm going to just dive in. So let's just look at the, look at the first word here, if. <laughs> There's a big old word. If. You've ever noticed how some of the most profound truths come in the smallest packages? Think about it. It's just two little letters, if. But think of what the impact of if is in your life. The things that have happened. If you look back, take inventory right now and look at when you say, well, if I would have done that. Or if I would have done that. If, to be honest, everything in your life is based upon ifs. Don't be discouraged. That sounds like doubt. But just your information, the word if is used 1,674 times in the Bible. <laughs> That's a lot of times. So there's nothing wrong with the word if. We can take it in a negative way. Negativity. <laughs> That's an inside joke with Amy and I. Uh, you can take it as a negativity because there are things. I remember when, like, when I was a kid, a child learns the meaning of the word if way before most adults actually realize the, the, the compounding interest that comes with it. Because I remember as a little kid, Pinky, my name is Pinky. I used to have long red hair and big red beard. But, and back in my childhood, I was just a bright red hair kid. And it was called Pinky. And uh, so she said, Pinky, if you finish your broccoli, I'll give you ice cream. But the whole thing, the hinge in the door was if. If you finish the broccoli, then you get the ice cream. Well, how long does it take a kid to figure out, I can horse this broccoli down because I want the ice cream, you know? And that begins to set a pattern, you know? And uh, if you really want to put it in grammatical terms, it's a conditional particle. That's what the word if is. And it's an action, you know? It's, it, it's, it's, it has conditions and circumstances that are around it. Now, let's think about just what Jesus said. If you abide in me, I'm going to sing a song in a few minutes called Abide. If you abide in me, what then? I will abide in you. But if you don't abide in me, the chances are slim that he's going to be abiding in you. If you keep my commandments, if you, if you, if you, 
back in Moses, if you, you know, they'll put none of the diseases of the Egyptians, if, if, if. It just goes on and on and on. This little word with a big hinge on the door. It opens up to possibilities of success. It also swings back and hits you if you don't do it and can be leading on to failure. So I want to put, before we read the, read the rest of this verse, I want you to think about in your heart the word if. What are some of the ifs that God's got before you right now? And are you willing to step into those? Or are you shrinking back? If you shrink back, if you withhold, I mean, I can start dealing out the negative cards right now if you want to, that are mentioned in the scriptures. If the things you, if you don't do, you will get this. Let's don't linger there, though. So in this verse, if the axe is dull, it assumes that there's a possibility, just by logic, that an axe could become dull. Now, who shops at Lowe's or Home Depot? Anybody here? You know, if you went in a store and you're looking for help, which is impossible these days, nobody works there anymore except for high school kids at night sweeping the floor. So <clears throat> that's the time, by the way, if you want to know a little trade secret, if you want to get something cheap, go to, go to Lowe's like at 8.30 or 9 o'clock, little Jimmy high school kids locking the place up, and, and you go, hey, I found this, this scratch here. Uh, says it's a $1,000 washing machine. Would you take 100 bucks for it? Uh, yeah, sure, okay. You know, and he signs up. That's the way to shop at Lowe's. I've learned post-pandemic, just go late at night on a weeknight, and little Jimmy's closing the place up. So anyway, but so <clears throat> this, this verse is assuming that if the axe is dull. So who's going to go into Lowe's and say, hey, could you lead me to the section where the dull axes are? I mean, they're probably not flying off the shelf. Who wants to buy a dull chainsaw? Who wants to buy a dull, who wants to buy a car that doesn't go forward? Who wants to, whatever, I'm, I'm just applying it. So it assumes that you're looking for something that works. So, but if the ax is dull, so we're stepping over the word if right now, and we're coming to the next part that shows that one of the options is you might be dull. It's quite possible you could be dull. What makes things dull? I've spent a little time on my grinding wheel out in the garage. And one thing I discovered is that you can make it dull with a grinding stone. <laughs> you can make it more dull than when you started if you apply it wrongly. If it's not level to it, you, you grind it, and next thing you know, what should be getting a sharp edge, it may look shiny and pretty. You put your finger on it, it's like, wow, this is worse than it was. Why is that? Because you've got it in the wrong place. You're applying the edge of your object of your axe at the wrong angle. And that's what happens with walking with Jesus. If you're at the wrong angle, you, you don't, you're not getting through. It's just not going to fit. It's a brown peg in a square hole. So it's one thing to have the grinding stone be something in your favor. It's another thing to apply it improperly. So if the axe is dull, one must exert more strength. Has anybody ever chopped wood with a dull axe? I have. Anybody ever done that? Who won? Who got the blisters in their hands to prove it? That's your testimony. Ah, man. Who had doubts? I mean, you could look at this sort of in a, an analogy form. If God gave you a task to do, and you start to try to do it, and 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 you're not really having success. Sometimes it takes time. You shouldn't be discouraged, but you're not having success. 
Isn't there a little voice there that the enemy starts to put out? Oh, God is with you. If you were better than, if you were, if you would, if you, and he starts his if trail in his campaign of ifs to start talking you off the ledge of faith and down to the pit of unbelief and not doing what God has called you to do. So what happens? What's the, what's the, what's the action that you can take to get out of that? Well, it's to repent. You know, you put your blade in the right place. And you get against that grindstone of his, if his edge where iron sharpens iron, where the Holy Spirit is doing his work. Scriptures are full. I mean, hear me clearly. The scriptures are full from cover to cover of the testimonies of men and women that were having their axes sharpened. True? It's true. Failures, blunt axes. Jonah, pretty blunt axe there. I mean, look what happened to him. He was you know, struggling, trying to figure it out in his own strength. It wasn't going well. Just just pick any Bible character and just see where they were trying to, you know, do things. And it just wasn't working out until the Holy Spirit intervened and helped them. So I want to just put a pause button for a second before we move on, because a lot of times people look at that if word and they look at opportunities as um, blessings, uh, punishment, or opportunities. So look at yourself right now. Let's just take a minute. Close your eyes for 30 seconds. And I want you to just think about Holy Spirit, drop into my mind right now. This isn't like a weirdness, you know, holiness thing. Or just, This is just a, a moment of simple inventory before the Lord. Jesus, what is it if it's in the way of my faith right now? What is the if that I'm bowing down to instead of saying yes to Jesus? Speak it to my heart right now. And Lord, I bring you that if. I put that if in your hands, Lord. I put that if against your wheel and ask you to sharpen that dull faith that's residing in my heart and in my mind, especially my mind. I pray for everybody's mind here in the name of Jesus right now, that their minds be renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to put a pause button on our text for a second to do something that I call testifying. This is something I, that God's put on my heart to proclaim everywhere I go. Jeff mentioned that I was there in the Jesus movement. Yeah, I was. I got saved in 1970. I got, you know, born again in a little log cabin up in Colorado. And the first thing that started happening was songs. I mean, every day for eight days, new song every day. By then, the summer, 40 songs, 50, I don't know, I mean, a lot. Enough that I had enough for two albums that I recorded shortly after that, back to back. Songs to Savior, Volume 1, Songs to Savior, Volume 2. But here's what was happening God was building in me. Not just a catalog of songs, but he's building me testimonies. I'm the son of a pretty successful attorney in Kansas City, David H. Clark. H. His middle name is Hamilton. My middle name is Hamilton. My son's name Hamilton. My grandson's Hamilton. <laughs> we like that, like that name. But I remember when I was a little kid, David H. Clark. I used to go to his office desk, his law office, and put my little hand on that letter H and just push it in 
push it in until it made an imprint. And I felt empowered, like, I'm going to be an attorney someday. That's going to be me on the wall, you know? And I felt empowered by it. Well, my dad, I was into sports. My dad had season tickets to the front row behind the Kansas City dugout. dug out. We had 50-yard line tickets for the Chiefs, all that stuff. Oh, by the way, I'm from Kansas City. Go Chiefs. We won a little game last weekend. There's, I can't remember. Flag football game or something. I can't remember. But um, anyway, but my dad also took me to the courtroom because his dream was it would be Clark and Clark someday. It wouldn't just be him being a partner in the firm, but they'd break off and have his own firm with his son. That was his dream, you know. And he would take me to the courtroom. And he, in the car on the way down there, he would explain to me what's going to happen in the courtroom today. Just like he explained to me, well, okay, if there's a man on second and one out, it's a pop-up. Don't run because that's an infield fly rule. I mean, he just explained to me how this all works out. And so I was being trained and being, you know, discipled, he will, to be an attorney. But I'll never forget the, the, the day he said that, son, the first and most important rule to remember in being a good attorney is train your witness to stick to the story. The plaintiff over there will take you down rabbit holes. He'll distract the jury with lies and half-truths and do all he can to persuade them that this did not happen. Your testimony is not credible. This is the real truth. And that's the way it is in the Christian life. We have an enemy that wants to dissuade you. He wants to trick you. He wants to deceive you. And he's good at it. He is not a slouch plaintiff. He is dang good. He's got tools. He's got witnesses of his own. He's got evidence to stack up against you. Why, look, at you did that. Yeah, I did do that. I did sin. He is good at trying to drop the gavel on your life. And there's not a person in this room that hasn't been condemned by their own sin. Hear that one more time. There's not a person in this room that's not been condemned by your own sin. No matter how simple, no matter how gross, everyone in this room is guilty. Unfortunately, the final gavel didn't drop on your life. The father stopped the son's hand. He gave his life that you might not be the person that takes the blunt of the punishment you're due. Thank you, Jesus. That's called salvation. And everyone in this room, hopefully, if you believe in Jesus, you have a testimony then. And you have a responsibility to do what? Stick to his story. This is what we're called to, is to stick to his story. All of us have emotional experiences. I could, I can spend a thousand stories up here of, of all the things I've done and seen, and they're exciting and cool, and they'd be very entertaining for you. And I don't mind that. That's okay. There's a place for it. But at the end of the day, if I'm not telling his story, there's no power. See, the Christian life is truly about power. Jeff mentioned I was there for the Jesus movement. I was. And you know what the real star was? I don't want to dissuade you. you know, I'm not going to be the Debbie Downer of the movie movement here. But I, and I, I'm thankful these movies are being made. It's bringing awareness about Jesus. People are talking about it. You know, they're talking now. Yeah, Asbury is a word you hear over. Asbury Rival. Well, I was there in 71 singing there. So I'm, I'm ancient, okay? I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, to some people, I'm past the expiration date, you know? But I saw all this stuff happening. Uh, first time that Tom Stipe called my uh, pay phone in my little coffee shop that I was running in Denver called The Narrow Gate. I picked the phone up and go, hello, and it was a bag cord. It was like one of those steel cords that has like loops in it. 
And he was, and he says, this is Tom Stipe from Chapel. I thought he said Calorie Chapel, because the word calorie just entered our culture. Everybody's watching their calories, you know. I'm taking 900 calories a day. I'm losing 20 pounds per month, you know. Everybody was counting calories. What a waste of freaking time to count calories. I appreciate that everybody can do that, that you like to do that, but man, if I see a piece of chocolate, I'm going for it, you know. I'm not going to sit around and debate. I'm just going to eat it and I'll figure out a way to work it off later, you know. <laughs> but uh, I thought he was saying, this is from Calorie Chapel. I thought, why don't you lose weight? I weigh 108 pounds. I'm six foot tall. I wear 26, 34 bell bottoms. It's the last thing I need to lose weight. So I just hung up on him. Well, then he called back. So I'm from Calvary Chapel. Oh, what's that? Oh, we have a little books right here and we're building a tent and we're starting to do concerts and we got to hold your first record. Can you come out singing? And that's how it started. I met Chuck Smith. He was 33, I think, or 34. I was 19. And Lonnie Frisbee was like one of my best friends. He, you'll see him in the movie, all this stuff. And I just, I, I'm, I don't want to see be negative, but for me, from my experience, I have to share with you, I knew these guys when they were 19 and 30-something, not 40 and 65 or 70, like in the movie. So I'm having a little trouble. But I don't want to pour water on your parade, but I want to tell you this. One thing I hope's in the movie is the power of testimony. Because the Jesus movement, I showed up at this last service. I showed up at the park. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. 500 people come forward. That happened. You didn't hardly do anything but just sing a little Pied Piper song, and people got saved. But what was it? I was testifying through my songs. But one of my favorite things to do in those early concerts was to pull some out of the audience. You know, hey, Jimmy. Hey, I remember you from last year when I was here. And I could see he was like totally full of the Holy Spirit and happy. Hey, come up here, Jimmy. Hey, Jimmy, tell us your story. Hand the mic. Now, that's kind of dangerous in some churches. Some guys could go on, yeah, son of a bitch. I was a young guy, God, yeah, they can go off, and maybe they haven't got quite sanctified yet. And their testimony's got some, you know, verbiage that may not be, you know, preacher style, you know. But, uh, you know, I've had a few F bombs come off the stage. <laughs> People are giving their testimony. I go, well, he's working on it. He's being sanctified, you yeah? know. And let's give Jimmy a hand, you yeah? know. But that has nothing to do, it was his heart. It was the purity of his testimony, the truth pouring out of him, of him testifying what, how Jesus had changed his life. That's far better than being a polished preacher with notes. Forget the notes. In fact, I was trying to print my notes off, and it screwed up on the printer. I just said, okay, forget it. I got page one. I'm going to church. I'm late. So you don't need that. You don't need to try to keep your life just as perfect, try to organize things and try to think you're being the best Christian you can. That's all fine. That's all good to study the Bible and, you know, witness to people. So, but if you don't have the power, which we have in this verse, if the axe is dull and one knows that sharpness strength, he must use more strength. What is the strength that you need to live a powerful Christian life? The Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you, in the Jesus movement, the Holy Spirit was on full display I mean, Jesus was the star of the Jesus movement, but actually the Holy Spirit was the best supporting actor and the one you saw more of. And testimonies drove the Holy Spirit around, basically. 
they were, it was the machine, the vehicle. Everybody testified. And I want to be really clear about something. I honor Calvary Chapel. I've been involved in Calvary for 50 plus years. But it wasn't a Southern California invention. Every town I went to had Alana Frisbee. Every town I went to had Chuck Smith. God's spirit was being poured out on the whole earth everywhere. Nations I went to two, three years later. I mean, 72, I was in Germany, I remember, and we were planting a church in Germany. And I met a guy, he had the same testimony as me and the same story. He didn't know who Lonnie Frisbee was or Chuck Smith or anything. He knew Jesus, and his story was the same as thousands of other kids I was hearing because it was being poured out by God. So I'm thankful for Asbury and thankful for the Calvary Chapel stuff. But listen, all those things are little drops in the windshield compared to Hurricane Ian. But when God pours his spirit out, you know, you can say what you want about, say, like a pandemic, but there weren't bodies stacked up on the Naples sidewalks. And revival is the same way. There's little pockets moving around, but when we see the hand of God poured out, you better get out of the way, because it's going to be amazing. And I am thankful that I'm still standing. Three years ago, I wasn't quite standing. I went in for a routine stint procedure. My shirt all last year was here. I went in for a routine stent procedure, and they accidentally, I guess you could say, uh, gave me two milliliters of lidocaine, and I flatlined code blue and off the planet, you know. And then they revived me, norepinephrine, whatever they do to get all your heart going again, everything. And they did the stent all the way up there, so they put a second stent in my leg to push the first one up there and used more, to, more lidocaine for that as well. But your leg's a muscle, not a vein. So 30 minutes later, boom, go blue, crash all over again. So my computer twice got unplugged. And uh, it took a while for me to kind of reassemble the parts. I'm still working at it. I'm not ashamed to say that. It's a work in progress. It's hard. Some days it's hard. I have vertigo and can't walk and stuff. It's, it's all part of the journey. You know, but what are you going to do? Just sit down? No, God gave me a second chance. I was standing here this morning testifying to you by the grace of God that I'm still going on. There's work to be done. And what did Jesus say? You know, a lot of us try to figure out when he's coming back. You know, I've been through all the movements in the 70s. My, my car was held together with bumper stickers, brothers and sisters. My car was so rusty, a 56 Dodge pickup truck. It was held together by bumper stickers. If the driver of this car disappears, you know, that Jesus came. If, the, you know, it's all these rapture statements just from bumper to bumper to hold my car together, you know, because it was just so rusted out. And that's just the truth, because everything was about Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. That was the, the banner of the Jesus movement in the early 70s. And all of a sudden, you know, by the mid-70s, it's kind of, the comet was kind of, the tail was kind of barely visible. And then came kind of a second outpouring. I call it Jesus Movement 2.0, 76 through 80, like Keith Green you mentioned. He was in the second. Rich Mullins, all these kind of reinforcements started coming alongside of us. And there were more Pied Pipers than just the original splattering of people. And it started growing. But I can tell you this, in 1980, the faucet got turned off. Now, why did that revival end? I, I, you know, I'm not the penultimate answer here. I can give you my suggestions. And I think the revival ended because people got in the flesh. The Holy Spirit does not honor... Um, what can I call it? Corporate schematics. <laughs> I'll call it that this morning. When you try to take the things of God 
and try to figure out how you can improve on it and make it better and put a sign on it and reproduce it that way and stuff. Holy Spirit just flies away. I took care of my mom five years ago, and in that nine-month period, I only wrote one song, which is pretty bad for a songwriter. It's called The Loneliest Man in the Church. I've never played it anywhere. It's like a holy song to me. Because that song, if you listen to the lyrics or read the lyrics, it would read somewhat like I'm talking about a retired pastor who sits in the back row and watches the new kid take it over and the new people coming and going. And they walk past him and kind of acknowledge him. Hey, hey, pastor, good to see you. And they walk right out. They don't hardly stop to talk to him. But the whole implication of the song was I was calling the Holy Spirit the loneliest man in the church. Newsflash, breaking news. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a thing. If you're here this morning and you think the Holy Spirit is like a mist or a thing, it's not. He's a person. And you get to know him as a person, your life will change. If you just treat him like an object, like you're going to get 50 pounds of something at Costco to stock up in case of an emergency, he's not an errand boy. He's not a supply house. He's a person. If you treat the Holy Spirit with respect as a person, he will work in your life way beyond what you can manufacture or engineer your own strength. I'm not kidding you. I am living proof of 52 years of God saving my butt by the power of the Holy Spirit. I can promise you, I could spend story after story up here. If, you know, we'd read like the book of Acts. And that's a goal of mine. That's not a way just to survive. It's a goal for me to be led by the Holy Spirit. It's a goal for me to look and hear beyond my natural senses. Because look at this verse again. If the axe is dull, one does not sharpen the edge. Okay, that re- requires an action. One does not sharpen the edge. It implies that you're going to have to sharpen this edge from time to time. There's going to be some action on your part you're going to, you're going to take. One must exert more strength. What happens if you don't have the strength? You know, last service, during this service, I was, my legs were getting a little tired. I, my back went out a few weeks ago, and I've been kind of nervous this bad back, and my legs were, I thought, man, I'm getting tired. And I looked, oh, 35 more minutes to go. Well, I, I was running out of strength in the natural room. I said, Holy Spirit, just help me get to the end of service. You know, and he did. Thank you, Jesus. I'm testifying right now that I put my axe on that stone, and he sharpened enough for me to finish this. I was like actually having a, a spasm, and I made it through. It feels better now, but who knows what next. This is just the daily grind, if you'll excuse the pun, of being a Christian. So it says we use more strength. Well, who likes to do the Christian life in their own strength? What a miserable thing. It's called religion. We got more than enough people testifying about religion in the world today. And it's boring. You can't hold somebody's interest with five minutes of religion. It's just like something you can't get off your hands. You know, it's terrible. Religious spirit, when I walk into a room and I feel a religious spirit, I would rather be in a bar of drunks than be in a room full of religious spirit. There's nothing more restrictive and oppressive to me than religion and religious spirit because it has all the accoutrements and all the words and promises of the, of the, the, the package, but it doesn't deliver. What's the Scripture saying? That they'll hold fast to a form of godliness but be void of the power. You read that verse before? Powerful truth. And we have a lot of people in the world today that hold fast 
They're formed of godliness, but they're not full of his power, his story. They've got the story. They can quote the story. You know, my dad was studying to be attorney or minister before World War II. He knew the scriptures. When I got saved and I went back to Kansas City to reconcile myself to my parents, my dad could quote scripture with me toe-to-toe at the breakfast table. But he wasn't born again. And I just kept pounding my little nail, <laughs> sharing my legs, chopping away his heart. And eventually, he became a Christian. It was a powerful time. So, let's stop again. I'm just going to stop again for a second. Because this is an inventory morning of your acts. That's what I'm trying to get to. I'm trying to get to a place where I want you to leave here today, go into your prayer closet, wherever it takes, but take inventory of your heart. Because we're in a time where, if you read Acts 27, I wrote a song, actually wrote a book uh, that was lost, lost at sea, so to speak, called Small Sails on High Sea, but it's taken out of Acts 27. We are living in a time where the roads can get narrower and narrower and narrower. If you're thinking we're going back to leave it to Beaver and life of four years ago, it ain't going to happen, folks. We are in the story, and this story has got velocity. I shared last service about how I was going to Israel and taking a group in, no, in November of 2019, and the Spirit spoke to me when he says, cancel your trip and piggyback in 2020 with your friend Skip Heidzig and go, on, go to Israel on that trip and start the 2020 with Israel, of Israel and finish it with the election. And then the word velocity, it's the only word I heard, velocity. I had no clue. Who knew before COVID that what was going to happen? Who knew that, was that, that the velocity of change? You know, those first 15 days. I remember the first, I came home from Costco with Heidi's son, John. He was here with us last year. And we had my concrete countertop. We had a blue painter's tape in the middle. That's the stuff we washed. That stuff needs to be washed. You know, we're all masked up. And I looked at him when they said, Hey, when did the 15 days actually start? When we started shopping by Costco and when they told us this? Or did it start like two months ago? Or I was already like thinking, what's going on here, you know? And I'm, I'm not profiting that, but I was already just kind of disrupted. But, you know, those were all preparations going on. But, but who could have ever foreseen that our world would change so rapidly? Who knew that? relationships would be divided? Who knew that people would lose their jobs? Who knew all the implications? I don't need to rehearse all that this morning. But who knew that was going to happen? Well, things changed. The wind blew. Last service I shared about, and I'll share it right now, these sailors in the room, any, anybody who knows how to sail a boat, you've been on a sailboat, on those, on those sails are little red talons, little red nylon strips all over that thing. And they're there for a reason. They're not there to just to look pretty. A good captain can look up at that, those sails and see which way they're darting around and steer into the wind to actually make it go forward with more power. If you're looking at the, if you're just trying to navigate that, that boat by the wind that's already in the sail, too late. It's already in the sail. It's like driving to church by your rearview mirror. You know, it's not going to turn out well because you, you're not paying attention to what's coming. And this is the place we're in right now, brothers and sisters. The road is going to get narrower and narrower. The options are going to be fewer and fewer. You either obey or you don't obey. You either get in the spirit or you're left behind. And this is, this is true. I'm not kidding you. This is not a, a, a rebuke. 
right that that is a, a slight warning take him to your life in Acts 27 they got to a point where the options were so few that this was a grain boat this was not a pleasure you know caravan cruise Holland lines or anything like that this was a flat floating cargo boat just a big barge full of grain and 275 people and you know what they did to survive? They threw all the grain overboard. Everything. It says they threw all the grain, the, the instruments, the, the, all the, the stuff in the boat that had weight, they threw it over to give it ballast so they could survive. They were so desperate to not go down. And then the Apostle Paul steps up and says, hey, remember I told you not to sail? Well, here we are, but I got good news. We're going to crash. Like, good news? Yes, this is great news. We're going to crash. It's going to be awesome. Some of you don't know how to swim, don't worry. He said, here's a scoop. We're going to crash, but no one's going to perish. Stay in the ship until I tell you to get out. And maybe this morning I'm little Paul telling you, stay in fellowship. Stay in the ship until he tells us to jump. Otherwise, in fact, the soldiers actually tried to put a skiff and put it in the water themselves, and Paul caught them. Hey, put that back. You know, throw it overboard. He, he, he caught them before they cheated and got in their little skate boat like the Titanic. So what am I saying then? I'm saying to you this morning, the road's going to get narrower and narrower and narrower. And I'm going to sing a little song for you. I just wrote just recently, and I had a chance, a, not a chance, I had a privilege uh, to record this uh, a week ago, last Monday, uh, at Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals. Muscle Shoals is a, a vibe. It's like you go to Nashville for country, you go to New York for jazz. Muscle Shoals is this like laid back, uh, you know, Leonard Skinner meets Aretha Franklin meets, you know, uh, all these great songs that have been recorded uh, in the studio. And uh, I was fortunate to get Clayton Ivey to play keyboard, 78 years old. He's played on like 167 top 10 hits. Aretha Franklin, Mustang, all those songs, you know. And Will McFarlane, my friend on guitar, and his son playing bass, and drummer Jamie. Anyway, um, long story short, in the studio in, in, in Muscle Shoals, as well as in Nashville and some of their studios, you record by what's called a number system. So if this is the key of G, if you play guitar, that's a one chord. So if you're one, four, five, so if you're looking at a piece of paper, it doesn't say G, C, D, and B minor, and that stuff. It goes by numbers, one, 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 four, 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 four. They're all written out in beats. That's the way the numbers chart is written. These guys, Will and I, had worked a couple days in advance, had the charts ready to go, threw it out to the guys, go out to the studio. He sits down, Clayton sits down at this Wurlitzer piano that's been there since 1964. Every hit you've ever heard on the radio, it's the real one. And how do you attest to this? Seriously. Halfway through the first take, of not even taking, just rehearsing it, Clayton said, hey, stop, stop, stop. And then verse three, let's do that flat six and walk down to four, back to the five, and then back to one. Okay, great. Hey, let's start recording before we learn it. And the guy puts it in record, and the first take was like a freaking record. It wasn't high. It, it, it was amazing. We're, I, I, was, I was on the booth, because I'm playing in an isolation booth with a live microphone. They're out in the studio, the live drums. But I'm playing along, I'm going, this is amazing. I forgot... See, I started in 1971 when we all played in the same room and did that for 30-some-odd years until computers came along. 
And all of a sudden, people were sending files. And all of a sudden, people could, you know, punch a mistake. And all of a sudden, people could pitch correct their voice. And now, 50 years later, what do you got? A bunch of kids sitting in a library at school or sitting at Starbucks or a laptop, downloading drum loops and pitch correction. <laughs> hey, yeah, like my new album, here's my CD. They haven't done anything. They couldn't do a live concert. Their life depended upon it. You know, but they know how to work the technology. The music changed from art to fart. Hey, I just, <laughs> I just made that up. That's, uh, I'm sorry if I offend you. Aaron, if you're watching, I'm sorry, bro. So... It's maddening. So to be back in the studio at Muscle Shoals hearing that sound, it, it's not, it's like when you, you know, I can't describe it. It's like you smell coffee. I guess I'm out of coffee drinking. But once that kick drum and that bass came through that console, that old console, those modules, and through the speakers, I literally, it was like my inside. It just went, oh, I haven't heard that for decades. And it just sounded like a record. It was just real. It was just punching your guts out. So, anyway, I'm going to sing the song for you because it comes off this verse. Ecclesiastes 10.10. 10. And I may not do it perfectly, but guess what? You've never heard it, so you won't know. <laughs> Are we on? Yeah. 
the sunset, you were feeling all right. Mm, till the wind started blowing in the middle of the night. Yeah. Oh. That wind started blowing. fun to try to get your sea legs with new songs. They take on new little means all the time. So so back to that if word, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. I know I sang this here last year. It's still always one of my favorite songs to sing. Take out of John chapter 15. And, uh, you know, the whole thing is Jesus wants us to be fruitful. If you bear fruit in your life, you'll be happy. You're not bearing fruit, man. The Christian life sucks, to me, to be honest. It's, it's a drag. You're just lumping along and not bearing any fruit. Nothing to really give you encouragement. Like, wow, God's moving in my life. When you see the fruit in the branches of a tree, like that last song talked about, it's exciting. It makes you want to have more. You know, not for yourself, but you are humbled by it and go, wow. You know, I'm going to walk out here today, and in spite of missing a quarter or note or not saying all I wanted to say, it won't matter. I know the Holy Spirit's here right now, and there'll be some fruit, and it makes me encouraged to be used still, not for my own glory, but for His glory, because I'm telling His story here this morning. 
And that's what I want to encourage you in, just to draw near to Jesus. And these times are going on as this road gets narrower and narrower and the options get fewer and fewer. It'll be apparent. I mean, I think the pandemic really showed who's really, you know, doing church for the Lord and who's doing church for a corporation. You know, it sort of weeding out a lot of people. And I'm sad to say a lot of my friends, pastors I've known for 30, 40, 50 years, soft-bellied, close, and you're just shunning down. We don't want to lose anything. Building our scaffolding. All they worked on was their scaffolding to keep their programs going. You know, just go read Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Just go read Eric Taxis' book on the letters to the American church. Go read those, some of those books and give you the history of the 1930s in Germany, and you'll be on your knees. It'll drive you there because we need sharp axes. We need people that are in the fight. The apostles, Apostle Paul, fight the good fight of faith. It's a good fight. Thank God that word good is there. If it's a bad fight, who wants to get in a bad fight? You know, I'm, I'm a redhead. I had a hot little temper as, for as a Christian, and it was kind of punch now, ask later kind of thing. But I never got into a bad fight. I only got in a fight when it was a good fight. You know, the first time I ever got in a fight, I'm ashamed to say I've never said this in public. I got in a fight with my best friend because he got mad at me for putting fizzies into the Catholic Church baptismal thing. That was my first fight. He was so mad at me. I said, let's go to the church and put fizzies in the baptism. I didn't even go to that church. We're at the bowling alley. We walked across the street and just, just a, uh, you know, adolescent idea I had. <laughs> and that was, it. we got to, we're punching. We're in the parking lot, you know, we rolling around. It was a good fight. And it was worth it because I realized what an idiot I was, especially when the police showed up. <laughs> and my parents are called. My dad, being a lawyer, hey, we got your son down at the station here. He, put fizzies in the baptismal. <laughs> Not really the fight you want to be in. So, <laughs> how am I going to get myself out of this, Jeff? <laughs> website. <laughs> go to the website. Let's go to the website. Let's have a review. <laughs> One thing I didn't do first service was tell people, I'm in this midst of action right now, I'm making a documentary of my own. So, uh, Save Your Popcorn. There's another movie coming out soon. But it won't be one of those kind of movies. It won't be just uh, looking back to something happened. It's really a series of, my goal is to have 10 five-year chapters in my 50-year-plus journey now, uh, and to inspire that 18-year-old kid with a broken compass. It was like me. You know, it's not to just show pictures of me and Sting or Ringo or all the great stories I've had. I've got stories I can spin for you. They're amazing, you know? But I am devoted right now to want to tell his story to inspire a young person to not be that dull axe person, not to be that religious person, but to know Jesus. And that is what my life's all about right now. So it's called Tumbleweed in the Fence. A lot of people don't realize this, but a tumbleweed, we were talking about this the other night, a tumbleweed, when it breaks off from being a green bush, it actually drops about 240,000 seeds. It's a pollinator or a pollinator. Pun there, sorry. Uh, but as it tumbles, it's releasing seeds. But then what happens? It hits a fence. And it's stuck in that fence until what happens? The wind picks it up and takes it over the fence. And on she goes rolling and pollinating. And I've got f 10 distinct five-year chapters. Freakishly, my life falls into those chapters of events that happen. Then I got stuck in a fence. 
like 70 through 75, Jesus Movement 1.0, 75 through 80 was like the second part, just 80 through 85 church plant. Just, I can tell you, 95 through 2000, Promise Keepers, I mean, I sung to a million people. And so all, all these little five-year chapters, they're all just rolling testimonies and affidavits of God's moving. And you have your own stories too. Tell that story. Let that story shine. Let the grace of God that's been in your life, let that be your story. But guess what? You won't get your axe sharpened. Your story will lose its edge. Like the first verse of the song, Once upon a time you're in fire for God. You fought the good fight, no matter how hard. As time went by, you stopped reading the word, and you live off your story when the times are good. But now the tools are rusty from sitting in the shack. You better get back to your Bible, brother, and sharpen your axe. That's the truth. That's the truth. If you don't abide in Christ, you will have a dull axe. So I'm going to sing this last psalm. I'm going to close up. But Jesus said, bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. Touch the whole inner side, but in the vine, I'll abide. Hey, 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 oh, 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 my Savior, my God, you are my King, you're the Lord of Jesus is the vine. 
Amen. Thank you. Thank you. It's very kind. I appreciate that. I want to thank Aaron uh, for inviting me to fill his pulpit. That's quite a privilege. I want to thank Jeff and Jeff for their work and other people. And um, it's a joy to be here. I really am blessed to be here this morning. Like I said, uh, every opportunity. Uh, I won't use the word breaks my heart. It makes my heart, I guess you could say. Because I'm very thankful to A, still be here. I'm not looking forward, like Paul said, I'm looking forward to going to heaven, you know. But I got reasons to live right now. I got a beautiful wife, Heidi. We're, like I said, we're celebrating our 20th month anniversary yesterday. <laughs> but I have lots of reasons to live. But more importantly, most of all, I want to tell people about Jesus. I want to influence the world for Jesus. I want to break down the kingdom of darkness. I love a good fight. I love to see the devil lose. <laughs> And it's great, great, great to be on the winning side. If you're doubtful about the outcome, just pick up your Bible, flip it over to the back last few pages, and read how it all turns out. doesn't go into overtime, by the way. You know, a lot of today, it seems like somebody might be maybe fixing things sometimes because all the games just coincidentally are going to overtime and, oh, a field goal with two seconds left, and, you know, I mean, my Chiefs even, but... You know, I'm not uh, calling it false or fixed, but things do happen. I was a chaplain for the Chiefs for 20 years, the Royals for 20 years, and PGA Tour for 13 years or whatever, but, and you can't fix everything, but there are powers that do try to manipulate things in our world today. Remember, everything you see on TV has been produced, everything. Somebody cut that up, you know, and uh, turned into a story. So remember to follow the truth, Test the spirits, see if they're of God or not, and follow Jesus. Yeah, Amy? Next year, I'll have to do it. Too late. Time's run out. I'm at my time limit. I respect uh, the church, and uh, I'll... <laughs> do I have time? Okay, do I have time to do one more then, or are we too late? Want me? Jeff's giving me? Okay, give me okay. Okay, okay, here we go. Was anybody here last year that I sang the song to tell us Okay. So in John, Jesus makes a statement, it is finished. And that's his work on the cross. He breathed his last breath and it was finished. I wasn't going to do this today because, you know, I don't want to do the same thing as I did last year. But since we have a few people that really want that song, <laughs> I'm here to serve. That's the bottom line. I am here to serve. So whatever I can do to build your faith up and encourage you, I'm willing to do. I'll stay for three more hours and do all 370 songs off my albums if you want. So, so the first rule of this song is I'm going to take you on a journey now. I don't know if I did this or not last year, but, you know, we were playing a song. Or open the eyes of my heart. That's where my hand is. Why don't you see where my hand is? That's, that's an E chord, okay? That's standard tuning. But since you asked the song now, you get a little lesson here. So I get bored with standard stuff. So way back in the early 70s, I started listening to Joni Mitchell, and I thought, what is she doing? There's like this. I thought, what, how is she getting that? There's no way you can play those notes on the same string. And I thought, duh, she tuned her guitar differently. <laughs> and so I kind of started listening to the chords and figuring out things changed. So when I was in a little town called Parachi, Brazil, back in 2003, my study for the day, this is the Wednesday before Easter weekend. I'd been there for six weeks. I was getting ready to leave the next day to fly 
to Houston, to Los Angeles, be picked up by Skip Heidzik, taken down to Irvine uh, Amphitheater, and have a good Friday service with Chuck Smith and a bunch of Calvary, Mike McIntosh, Craig Laura, these guys. Did a good Friday service, a lot of worship leaders and Wickham's and all that, and it was going to be a great day. But I was walking around this little beautiful, historic gold rush town, 1500s Portuguese town. And I thought, Lord, uh, you know, the day is in his hand. Okay, it's great, you know, but man, can I, can you give me something like fresh that no one's ever done? Not for my own pride, but just for something that's new. Because I'm always looking for the next thing. I've always been kind of a pioneer. So I started walking around this town and just cobblestone streets and meet this painter, which is a whole side story I can't get into. <laughs> I literally walked up to a guy painting in an alley, and he speaks Portuguese. Anybody speak Portuguese here? Because I speak some Spanish, and Portuguese is like Spanish on acid. You know, like, things going well for a minute, and then all of a sudden, hang! He over the, he goes bad. And he's painting this painting, and I'm going, ah, it's really nice. It was beautiful. I mean, it was, he was, it was really talented. Oil painting, you know, it's like, you know, 20 by 28 or something like that. And I'm looking at it, and so, you know, the language of the world is called a $100 bill. I pull it out, I go, you finished. I give you the 100 when you finish. He, ha, ha, ha. He starts laughing, you know. I said, no, it's $100. I'll pay you $100 right now for the painting. <laughs> and he goes, uh, or uh, uno, one, one hour. He was trying to tell me one hour. So I leave and I go walk by the beach and stuff and I come back and he's just finishing up. I pull the 100 out. He's laughing. I said, come on, come on. You know, and that's all I had on me. It truly was all I had on me. It was my secret Hunsky. I had you know, stuck in my billfold. I give him the $100 bill and he just laughs. Well, the next morning, I get on my flight and I had been upgraded to first class because I had miles because I wanted to put the oil paint up there. It was still wet, Okay. It was a double cool uh, morning because my seatmate was a guy named Trombone Shorty, whose name is Troy Andrews, but now he's known as Trombone Shorty. He was 17 years old. He was playing with touring with Lenny Kravitz. So we had this incredible 11 hour flight together. But, but when I put it up there, I couldn't quite get it up there. And I kind of took it back down from it. And another passenger in first class said, Wow, where did you get the Ibrahim? I don't even know. He names this guy's name off like Van Gogh. And I go, Huh? And he goes, Where'd you get that? I said, well, I bought it yesterday for 100 bucks on the beach. He goes, 100 bucks? Turned out, I looked the guy up on Condé Nast Traveler, and I said, he's like a world-famous painter. It'd be like walking with Jimi Hendrix now from 10 cents to you know, play a song or something. You know? But he did it. He must, have got, he must have gone home and told his wife, I met this stupid American today, <laughs> and he gave me $100 for one of my paintings I could have sold for 20000 but I thought it'd be kind of funny just to give it to him so he'll have a story to tell. And I do. I have it hanging in our, in our house in Missouri. And it makes me feel like an idiot every time I look at it. So anyway, back to the story, because you asked for more. I was on time. Sorry, Aaron. So here's how it goes. You have E, A, D, G, B, E in a standard tuning. So I'm going to take the B string, and I'm going to go up one step. And what you can check is... So now I've got a reference for a C, a C note right there. Now I go down to the low E string, which is down here. And if I take that down, not one step, but two steps down. You can tell those notes sound the same, like sonically. Octaves. So now I've got the B up to a C, the E down to a C, from, from E down to a C. Then the A string, I'm going to take it down to G, so it's one step down. So now... Now I've got three strings I've changed. The B string went to C, the low E went down to C, and the G string, A string went down to G. So now, 
I've got a problem. There's one note missing. So I take the high E and go down one more step. Now I've got three octaves. I've got C's, I've got G's, I've got D's. And now I've got places in between. What am I going to do to make all those notes come together? I've got to put my hand in a completely different position. I've been playing all the morning, all morning long. At A minor, here's open the eyes of my heart now. Ready? Ready for a train wreck? Here we go. Same position. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Oh, that wouldn't go very well. I'd probably be fired before the song's over. But, wait, there's more. If I can transpose in my brain and move my fingers to where the chord should go, this is an A minor standard tuning. That's so good, but here, I start moving chords around. Now I got a C chord. You can't do that. You can't do that standard tuning. That's impossible on guitar and standard tuning. But I've just opened up possibilities. So I'll make this point and sing this song. The tuning of this song opens up new possibilities. The cross of Christ, the work of it is finished, opens up new possibilities. It's called salvation. The, court, the curtain was torn from top to bottom. The way was open for you and me. With his last breath of it is finished, it became our first inhale. Salvation. Don't ever take that for granted. Don't ever take the free gift of salvation for granted. It's a free gift. Don't ever take it for granted. It's all you've really got at the end of the day. It's all you've got. Some will fall by your right, some by your left. I was telling a friend in the golf course yesterday, at Christmas, I deleted 54 names out of my phone book over just the last year of my friends that passed away that I knew for 40, 50 years. Yeah, I'm in that age group. But strange things are happening. And uh, you got to just keep thanking God every day for salvation and be used by Him. Amen. Scream, he blasphemed. 
crucify him I was scourged, I was bruised I was beaten and Now there's nails on my hands And my feet on this cross Here on Golgotha Thank you. 
It is finished. Jeff, thanks for requesting it. Sorry to keep an extra 14 minutes long, but that's the way it goes when you ask for requests. <laughs> God bless you guys. Let's, uh, let's give Paul a hand. And Paul, if you don't mind, can we pray for you? Yeah, absolutely. Let's, uh, let's all stand up. Just pray for Paul and the ministry and Lord, to give him doors to open. Father, we thank you so much for his testimony, Lord. And those words that tell us die, Lord, that we've, we've all come across in Scripture, Lord, and have ministered to us so many times to remember this gift, the salvation, that it, the price has been paid. And I just pray for Paul that you would open doors for him, Lord, to be able to spread your word to tell others of the tetelestai, that you paid the price for us. Lord, we thank you so much for our brother. Guard him and keep him, bless his family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.